for being here tonight. Um, we're going to be in Isaiah. We're going to start at the end of Isaiah 43 and uh, cover a portion of Isaiah 44. Um, Isaiah 43, we may have mentioned this last week, is a, um, is a breaking point. The first verse of, of chapter 43 is where the prophet turns from the past and then he turns to the now. So he's looking back at um, what has happened to Israel and now in 43 he begins to speak to what God is doing currently with Israel. And I think it is worth repeating. There's another event in the history of Israel that's important if you're going to put all those pieces together. First is the Exodus. The Exodus is so important for understanding the way that Israel saw themselves. God did something unique and special in the Exodus. He took his people who were nothing out of slavery and he brought them into uh, an identity. He, he, he uh, gave them an identity and brought them into the land that he had promised to Abraham. Now, God did that by his own power. He did that uh, of his own initiative. He did that to keep his promise. They did not do anything to cooperate with God. They were helpless, and God stepped in and helped them. The second event in Israel's history is the exile and the return. So Judah and Jerusalem had survived the invasion of Assyria, and that all went very well. The, the, the tribes in the north, known generally as Israel, and then Judah is the south, the tribes in Israel are occupied by the Assyrians. And by the way, that, that happens in the 8th century. The Assyrians and the Israelites intermarry, and that's where you get the Samaritans. And this is one of the reasons why there's such hostility in the time of Jesus between the Samaritans and the Judeans. Uh, they're considered uh, no longer the children of Abraham. Uh, and there's a lot of hostility, and they, they, they still worship Yahweh, but they worship Yahweh on Mount Gerizim, and uh, we don't have time to get into all of that history. But this is what, this is what it means to be Samaritan. That's why you won't see Samaritans mentioned very often in the prophets, because they're just not around yet. Uh, we have to have a few generations there until we can get to the culture and the identity of people known as Samaritans. Now, what happens, though, is Judah does not survive the, uh, the invasion of Babylon. And Babylon takes over. They become the dominant force in the 6th century. They push the Assyrians out, uh, or they, they just take over. They dominate the Assyrian Empire. It fades and crumbles. And by the way, God's story with his people are that you have this, you can, this continuation of his people of Israel in the midst of empires that rise up and crumble. So you have Egypt, you have Assyria, you have Babylon, then you have the Greeks, and then you have the Romans. These empires come and go, but God's covenant with his people sustains through it all. The look of it may change. The identity of his people may change in the sense that sometimes they're a, king, they're a tribe, sometimes they're a group of slaves, sometimes they're a kingdom, but God's covenant with them remains the same even now 
uh, in his covenant with us, with the church. So all of these empires come and go. Uh, when Babylon is the dominant force, they take the people of Judah captive and they lose their identity. They lose their land. They lose their king. They lose their temple. They lose all these things that they thought made them the people of God. And they have to rediscover that. And they find out that they are the people of God by virtue of the fact of covenant. Covenant is what makes them God's people. And, and obeying the scripture. And God's going to, to release them from exile and send them back. It's all because of God's grace. Again, nothing that they've done. And in fact, what has landed them in exile is their rejection and their ingratitude towards God. Uh, take a look with me at 4322. Uh, God, through the prophet, says, You've not called on me, Jacob. You've not wearied yourself for me, Israel. You've not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with your sacrifices. I've not burdened you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demands for incense. You have not brought any fragrant calamus for me or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. This is part of a theme that the prophet has to... Uh, to proclaim to Israel, to Jacob, that their great sin is ingratitude. They are ungrateful. They do not appreciate what God has done. They, they don't give him uh, sacrifices, which he is due. He is worthy of it. They don't give him worship and devotion, which he is worthy of. But instead, God says, you've wearied me with your sins. But God's going to forgive them anyway. Why? Because God is faithful, unlike Jacob and Israel. So, uh, in, uh, in verse 26, he takes them back to a view of the past again. He says, review the past for me. Let us argue the matter together. State the case for your innocence. Your first father's sin, those I sent to teach you, rebelled against me, so I disgraced the dignitaries of your temple. I consigned Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. Uh, and then in 44, he says, But now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have so chosen. This is what the Lord says, He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, uh, Jeshurun, who I have called. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow. Like poplar trees by flowing streams, some will say, I belong to the Lord, and others will call themselves by the name of Jacob, and still others will write on their hand the Lord's and will take the name of Israel. So he's promising them that they are going to have a future. And, and there, you'll often see this talk of um, streams in the desert and a way made through the highway. That's a very Isaiah theme, that, that God is going to do something where you don't expect that to be done. You don't expect water in the desert. You don't expect there to be a, a, a path, a road, a highway built in the desert. But he says all of this is going to happen because I'm going to get my people back to the land and I'm going to provide for that journey. It's Exodus 2.0. It's the Exodus all over again. 
Now, in verse 6, um, we pick up on something that becomes especially a theme of this part of Isaiah. And it is God versus the idols. God versus the other gods. One of the questions that you'll see a lot in Old Testament studies, a lot of people like to ask this is, okay, so God's always saying that he's better than these other gods. Are these other gods real? Is there anything to them? Or are they just the imagination of people who want to worship their own selves? I've noticed over the years that that question gets asked a lot, and I think it comes from... uh, cultures where there are belief in multiple gods and we certainly need to have an answer about all that I'll give you the short version Um, the answer is it doesn't matter it doesn't matter in the sense that God is the only true God he's the only God with any real power and he's certainly more powerful and very different and unique from all these other forces and powers I mean, let me put it like this. We could argue that um, some idol god of the past, Dagon, Baal, we could say, well, those are just, those are just mythological forces. Those are just, those are just imaginations. Those, there, there never really was such a creature. Okay? I, I, I'm willing to accept that. that. That certainly fits in my worldview. But I also know that the people who believed in those things created a belief that had an impact on them and others. If you've ever been to a, uh, a culture or a, uh, a country or a place where people really believe in these powers, it affects them in some profound ways. Um, the, um, we, we still deal in our culture with superstitions. Uh, we still deal with... Um, obsessions, things that have a certain power over us. We're afraid that if we don't do something, then maybe it's not going to go well for us or for others. Uh, We think that if we make promises and commitments and vows, then God's going to have to owe us or some power is going to have to owe us. Things that are not even God's have a power over us, like the economy or fear. And again, you, you know, is fear anything? Is it a real God? Well, it's not a God, certainly, but it is a thing. It's something that affects us. The message of Scripture is that God is over all those things. Um, ancients and, and people in some parts of the world have ways of embodying those things to deal with it. We have the same forces available to us, but... We treat it differently. Let me give you one that, um, that I think is uh, affecting us a lot right now. That would be the God of panic. Panic is out there. Uh, there are fears about the coronavirus. There's fears about um, terrorism. There are, there are fear. Is any of it real? Well, certainly there are real things contributing to that. But the panic and the worry and the uh, concern certainly gets greater maybe even than the real problem. It's not to say it's not real. It's affecting people. It really is. But then the panic adds to that. Right now we're concerned about coronavirus. Don't forget, a few years ago, Ebola was going to spread all over the world and we were all going to die. Okay, you remember that? And uh, 
And I think God showed in a powerful way that he was God even in the midst of all that. We have some stories, we have some witnesses, we have some testimonies. Yes, it's real. Yes, it affected people. Yes, it caused a great harm and damage and death. But our panic was not the God that we needed to bow down to. It's always the case. It'll, it'll always be the case. And, th- and that's exactly what's happening in Isaiah too. They are panicked about Assyria. They're panicked about Egypt. They're panicked about Babylon. And God's saying, oh, it's a real thing and it's out there, but you need to trust in me. And that's where God always calls us to. So when we read about the idols, I think it's a bit presumptuous on our part to just toss that aside and say, tut tut, you know, to, uh, to tisk tisk those ancient people and their silly belief in idols. We are all so enlightened. And yet when we do that, we have two gods that take their stand above God called reason and science, and we bow down to them. Um, God always trumps our science. God always is above our reason. Um, Okay, so there's a dialogue here that starts. And let's pick up in verse 9 of chapter 44. He says, All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind, and they are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will all be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool, works it in the coals, He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength, and he drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and marks an outline, or makes an outline with its marker. He roughs it out, and he chisels, and he marks it with compasses, and he shapes it in human form, human form in all of its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He He cut down cedars, or perhaps he took a cypress or an oak, He let it grow among the trees of the forest, or he planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It's used as fuel for burning some of it. He takes it and he warms himself, he kindles a fire, he bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. This is the scene I love. I mean, get this. This is a commentary. It's a ridicule of those who who would worship an idol. He's saying it doesn't make sense. He said, here's this fella who's got this wood and and he divvies it up. Uh, and he says, half of it he burns in the fire at which, over which he prepares his meal. Uh, he roasts his meat, and he eats his fill, and he also warms himself, and he says, ah, I'm warm, I see the fire. But the rest of that same wood, he makes a god, his idol, and he bows down to it and worships it, and he says, save me, you're my god. It's that same material, and he says, that's his god. How is that going to save him? when every other use of the wood has been what he has made of it. Even the rain that made the wood grow in the first place, that God didn't create that. God himself gave that rain and created the wood. Um, So verse 18 is a comment on those who would think like this. Now, I'm going to warn you, right now we're, we're having a good laugh at those who enjoy idols, okay? And that's where the prophet has us. 
he's about to spring it on us, okay? So watch for it. Might as well just go with it. It's like a magic act. Rather than resist it and say, oh, I won't get trapped by that. No, go ahead and let it have its way with you. It's pretty good. You got to appreciate what he's doing here. Um, They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they can't see and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think and no one has the knowledge or understanding to say, Half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what's left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Now here's the spring trap. Now remember these things, Jacob. For you, Israel, are my servant, and I've made you. You are my servant, Israel. I will not forget you. He's saying, let's get the relationship right. I am not like that God that you do all of this other stuff, and then you take a little bit of wood and make a statue for me. He's warning them, that's what got you into exile. That's what's going to cause your undoing again if you don't understand this now. He says, you are my servant, not the other way around. Uh, Verse 22, I have swept away your offenses like a cloud. Your sins like the morning mist return to me, for I have redeemed you. It's a warning for them. And, and, you know, it ought to be a warning for us. Sometimes um, the church stands outside of culture and, and judges it. And, and we need, somebody has to stand up and say something from time to time. But sometimes we don't realize that what we're saying, it, it boomerangs back on us. And so I think even when we do that, even when we have things to say, we need to do it from a position of humility we need to do it from a position of, of grace and warning. Like we said in the text this morning from Matthew 9, <clears throat> Jesus looks at the people who are harassed and helpless. He doesn't have anger or contempt. He has compassion for them. It's the people who are the, supposed to be the leaders, the religious people that he is disappointed in because they haven't recognized what God is doing we will find ourselves much more content, much more at peace if we understand that we are God's servant, not the other way around. Because I fear that sometimes in, in our, you know, in the last 250 years of this great democratic American experience, that sometimes we think, isn't God great? He's given us the ability to create a democratic society and laws, and that's because he gave us reason. Thank you, God, for getting us started. We've finished it, certainly. And God's also given us the ability to make churches that glorify him and to uh, build up this and build up that. And we've got this great society that that just honors God, and God, aren't you proud of us? And it's a, it's a thin line between that, that desire to really honor God in our, in our culture and in our life 
and then a kind of hubris and pride that says, hey, God, look what we've done for you. Um, we don't get the privilege of having pride in our own accomplishments just because we pour the sauce of godly gratitude all over it, all right? You can cover it over, but it's still there. there there's always required a certain kind of humility. As the as prophet Isaiah says, you need to return to me for I'm re, I have redeemed you. We need to have that understanding that he has swept away our offenses like a cloud. The proper response, verse 23, is worship. Sing for joy, you heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, you earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all you trees, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. And by the way, the first, the first things of creation that show up for worship, it's not us, it's creation. Um, we continue in 44, verse 24, he says, This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heaven, who spreads out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense. And do you notice in here all of those, those examples of, of our tendency to, to put ourselves just a notch above God or maybe just right there just a little bit equal maybe a little bit beneath God, but we still want that pride in our own accomplishment. The, uh, you have the false prophets. Isn't it a thrill to be able to speak, but not just speak what you want to, but to say that what I speak has the stamp of approval of heaven on it. But false prophets get caught up there. I don't, I'm, I'm convinced that no one sets out really thinking, you know, I, I want to be a false prophet. That's my goal in life is to be a false prophet. I think the first person that the false prophet deludes is himself or herself. I think they fully buy in to the lie. I don't see how anybody can continue like that unless they're just an absolute charlatan. And those people, we usually we, we see right through them. But the false prophets of, of this time and even today must surely buy into their own life first diviners that's our attempt oh we want to know the future we want to know the future so bad we will go to any length to predict it i mean we like to predict the weather we like some assurance it's going to rain on tuesday it's going to, sun's going to shine on friday you know that yeah my weatherman told me you think that's going to hold up it better when are we going to learn to just relax and take what comes i, I mean honestly it it helps, especially when there's something disastrous out there. But, you know, we love to tell the future. And so we like these diviners because I think what they do is they promise us security. The wise. God overthrows the learning of the wise. What's so bad about being wise? I think it's far better than ignorance. Why would being wise be so, be so bad? Because wisdom and learning and intelligence has a way of us sinking our trust in it rather than sinking our trust in the wisdom of God. The truly wise are those who understand that there are inscrutable things that, that belong to, to God. 
and it's best to put our trust. That's really the beginning of wisdom when you read uh, the wisdom of the truly wise, of the godly wise. Um, But all of those things can become our blocks of wood. Those can become our little idols. They're things that are within our control, within our power, and we use them. We use our worldly wisdom. We use our ability to predict the future rather, you know, imprecisely. We, 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 we use all of that, and then we make it into our God. We put our faith in it. We put our trust and our hope in it. And we're no different than that comical fellow who bows down to a block of wood after, you know, grilling a couple of hamburgers on the same wood and warming himself by that campfire. God is telling them that Jerusalem shall be inhabited. Now that, that's a long shot. Nobody in this time with Isaiah would have, would have looked at the facts and said that that's a real out there possibility. But the prophet, speaking on behalf of God, says, Jerusalem it's going to be inhabited again. It's a ghost town right now, but it's going to be inhabited. They shall rebuild it. They're going to rebuild the ruins because God says, I will restore them. God says to the watery deep, be dry and I will dry up your streams. And he says of Cyrus, and this is our first mention, I think, here of Cyrus. This is the Persian emperor who's going to be the downfall of Babylon. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Cyrus is going to show up again. But Cyrus is going to be praised because God's going to use Cyrus as the instrument to set his people free. God says of Cyrus, he's my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. And he will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Now, God is not praising Cyrus like Cyrus has anything to do with this. The prophet's making it clear that God is saying of Cyrus... Well, he's my servant. Go back, go back a few verses. Just like Jacob and Israel, he says, I've made you, you are my servant. God is saying of Cyrus, I've made you, you're my servant. And the promise here is, is that God's going to accomplish all of his original, you know, all of his intended plans are going to come true. They're going to happen. We're going to repopulate Jerusalem. We're going to rebuild it. According to God's plan. And, he, and there's going to be this individual Cyrus who's going to do it. Uh, we'll look. Cyrus is going to show up again. And we're going to show what kind of role he plays. I, I personally don't think it's healthy to regard Cyrus as some kind of divine figure. He's not some sort of saint. He's a political leader. But God says, just like he did with any of the political leaders of Israel, they're my shepherd. God has his sheep. He's going to get a shepherd who's going to take care of those sheep. He's going to provide a leader. Now, the, the, the shepherd, the greatest of all shepherds, is going to be the king of kings and the lord of lords. It's going to be Jesus. Jesus is going to come in. You know, God has had different shepherds over his flock throughout the ages. He's had prophets like Samuel. He's had patriarchs like, like Abraham. He's had um, uh, prophets and leaders like Moses. He's had kings like Saul and David and Solomon. He's had priests like Aaron. Uh, God has always had these shepherds for his people. But in Jesus, you see every role of a shepherd embodied in one person. 
And you even see the nature and the personality and the heart of God, the spirit of God, wrapped up in him. Uh, so once again, Isaiah is going to give us a glimpse. You know, it's a preview of what the Messiah ought to be. And we finally see that fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, we'll pick up in chapter 45 then next week with uh, some comments on Cyrus. Uh, we're going to um, sing this song. If you need to partake of communion, that's been prepared in room 100. Let's stand and sing and we'll be dismissed in prayer. <laughs>